Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Listen to the new Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people, like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com and join us. The Copper Pig Brewery in Lancaster, New Hampshire, is brewing traditional and innovative high-quality beers, as well as serving a large menu of creative comfort foods, appealing to all walks of life, with daily specials sourcing many ingredients locally. Charitable involvement and support of their community is the cornerstone to the Copper Pig Brewery's mission. Voted number one in New Hampshire by WMUR Viewers' Choice two years in a row, 2018 and 2019. Please join me at the Copper Pig. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the past.
passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Episode 47, Chris Wright, Deputy Chief, Idaho. Chris has been a friend for a long time. He's one of those guys, not just a friend, but a mentor. When I first came into International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, Chris was the outgoing president and took it upon himself to kind of mentor me. And mentorship's a, it's a big deal, isn't it, John, when someone takes you under their wing and brings you through the paces, so to speak. And I, I bet you've had mentors, and I bet you've been a mentor. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, man. And Chris is that kind of guy after, you know, that great discussion we had with him of a guy that really pays it forward and really tries to bring people up under him. And it was super cool. You had the opportunity to work with him. And Wayne, the, the ironic part was, even though Chris and I hadn't worked together throughout our career, we had worked with some of the same people on a very close knit, specialized, you know, operational thing on, on covert units. I mean, until we had the podcast, I wasn't aware that he was part of the Montana covert unit before he went over to Idaho had worked with a really good friend of mine and a fellow game warden that started in California and was one of our gurus of developing our undercover covert, you know, wildlife trafficking covert unit, uh, Joe Kanar. And uh, they ended up being really good friends. They worked together a lot. You know, we, we talked all about those, those big game deep cover cases. And it's just amazing how much of a small world we have in the thin green line of conservation officers all over the country. Chris was that kind of guy with the covert unit as well. He was paying it forward and helping you out. And yeah, he was, he's a very exceptional guy, very exceptional game warden and, and uh, very selfless. And what a great conversation we had with him. Yeah. And I, just the, the story he told that that case that didn't go exactly the way he want the sting that leaves in every game warden. I think uh, we were on uh, the district of conservation podcast with Gabriella Hoffman and she asked me about cases and I told her the cases that stick with me are the cases I didn't make or went, didn't go the yeah. way I wanted to. And those still stick in my craw today. And, and that was the same with Chris. He, when he shared that, he wasn't happy about that whole case. It was a huge case that didn't exactly go the way he wanted. They still made the case, so to speak. And then I think public opinion took over. Uh, one, uh, Just like that big case that just broke in Nebraska, too. I think public opinion is what weighs in that that's the big stick, I think. We're, we're the little stick. When it comes to a public opinion or your peers... Boy, that, that, that says a lot. Now, that every deer that you shot was illegal, regardless if it was legal or illegal. Now, everybody looks at you a different way. Yeah, it was. And the tough part about that one, Wayne, was it was right at the start of his career. And he was bringing in supervisors and fellow game wardens that were veterans. Uh, you know, they had a ton of dead animals. And he was kind of the case lead on it. And I can only imagine the frustration. I've been there myself, as have you. Mm. So we can empathize. Um, you know, that was one of those uh, career starter cases that he put 110% effort into and he did a great job on it. Mm. And the bottom line was connections with the landowner to, you know, the politicals that be and everything else that goes in and public sentiment kind of drove that case being solved, but not prosecuted, if you will. And I've been there too, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, someday I'm sure you and I'll talk about a, a chronic deer baiting case. The only baiting case of my whole 30 year career that we didn't make. And we didn't make it just because of the way how just tenacious this guy was of, of knowing the game politically and, you know, in the Silicon Valley. And it was very frustrating. In fact, I still have the citation filled out <laughs> in the ticket book I retired with all the areas highlighted without a signature, because besides the special operations met stuff we did, one of my fortes was making baiting cases. And we made about 15 good ones over a 10 year period, except that one. 
that guy will forever be our nemesis and man, it just hurts. And I felt for Chris so much when uh, he told that story and I went, and at the start of your career, like the first couple of years on, it must've hurt. Yeah. What a great guy though, to push that hard. Yeah. Yeah. And show that other end of it, that, you know, how hard you work and these are the results you get yeah. and you're not happy with them, but these are the results you get. Cause sometimes we get criticized for not getting good results and, and there's reasons for it which really sucks. It's not for lack of trying, whether it's the court system or whether it's politics or, or something else gets in the way. It's, it's sometimes not the result we want. It certainly isn't the result the sportsman wants, but it is what it is. And yeah, it sticks with us when, when we don't like it. So today and tomorrow we're going to be on the district of conservation podcast. And ours is this, this one's going to come out. This warden's watch is going to come out Thursday, but Gabriella Hoffman, certainly a dynamic lady uh, that's doing a lot in the area of conservation, who gets it at such a young age without being exposed to it all her life. Uh, I'm just glad that something reached her to, to bring her into our side and have the views so quick and have those discussions with us that were just, just dynamite. I really enjoyed sitting down and having a chat with her and exposing that because she does something we can't do. She's in the, the outside of D.C. and in that area. Certainly we can't engage there, nor nor do I really want to. She's doing something <laughs> beyond what I want to do. Yeah. But uh, so certainly uh, we had a dynamic conversation. I'm sure you guys did as well. Yeah, we had, we had a good time, and it was really neat after having her on our Thin Green Line podcast to talk to her individually about good conservation issues that we're both seeing, you know, not only our careers, but in in the case of uh, my conversation with her, we talked about, she wasn't fully aware of the Hidmore issue, uh, you know, cartel cannabis, human trafficking, how all those, you know, international trafficking organizations and criminal organizations affect conservation and wildlife and waterways here in America, as well as the public safety thing. So mm. she dissected the book in about a day and a half, which, you know, that's fast. <laughs> it's a yes. fast read, you know, but that was quick. And then we got into that, but something else we wanted to talk about was we just had the delisting of the wolf in the lower 48 states right. come up as a big legislative issue. And up here in Northwestern Montana, where we've been, you know, having an active conservation management wolf hunt going on now for several years and one of the first states to allow that. We talked about those impacts of how positive they've been for that majestic predator to keep it in balance. Um, and so, yeah, Gabriella does a great job of understanding the balance of conservation. And I agree, neither you or I want to be in the DC hotbed necessarily, <laughs> but, but she's right there. And most of her podcast content is uh, a bit political, but in a good way, because it's based on that conservation science. Right. And she is pushing it from the East Coast side that, and, and looking and kind of in the pipeline for all of these bills and all of these issues that come up that affect our wildlife nationally. And man, so cool to talk to, very knowledgeable, and she's doing great things. And I'm, I'm glad we're, we, we've got a friend in the fold on the thin green line now doing some great work. And, and like you and I have talked to her about, I'm sure it's not going to stop here. We're going to continue to do some good things with her and promote her podcast and all the good work she's doing, as well as all the other people we kind of mutually know. And it's, it's a, you know, it's kind of a small family when you mm-hmm. really look at this thin green line of conservationists making a dent on where the country is going to go. So kudos to, to Gabby for doing all of that. And uh, what a fun conversation it was on her show. I had a great time and I know you did too. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. And you're right. We're, we're, we're over the same people. Jana Waller and her collaborate, which is great to see. Jana was on our Thin Green Line show as well. So that was, uh, yeah, it's neat that some of the same people that actually didn't send us that way, but we end up there. It's pretty cool. Yep. And, and Chris Wright, 
you know, the same thing. Just uh, this is going to be a really good podcast. Everybody get a feel of Idaho. I, I had the pleasure of going there for a, a conference uh, probably four years ago and just a dynamic, beautiful place. The one place I, I thought I could move to. And my wife said if I could convince my, uh, my, my her family to move that we would go. I tried. Her father was all in. Her mother didn't want to leave. So, <laughs> ouch! <laughs> well, for the sake of the sake of the family, buddy, you that's, made a good call. That, that, yeah, that's right. Tempting, that's right. right? But we, we can't. We got to have East Coast West Coast. That wouldn't have worked for us, John. <laughs> there you go. So, episode forty-seven. Yeah, it work out better this way. It, it definitely does. Episode forty-seven. Chris Wright, uh, Deputy Chief, Idaho. This Warren's Watch podcast is with Chris Wright, Deputy Chief of Idaho Fishing Game. Is that what you're called, Chris? Is a deputy or assistant chief? Assistant, assistant chief. So everybody has different names for different things. It's uh, mm-hmm. and it's unique. I, I I like that, but I wanted to make sure the assistant was what 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 you were using is what I was saying. So and Chris and I actually have a little bit of history, as in he's a former president of International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, and he was the outgoing president when I joined the board. Uh, actually, I probably was on a year. I was the second uh, vice president. And Chris was one of those guys that mentored me in that organization. And I, I was just uh, sharing it with uh, John Norris here is that Chris got me up and running, pushed me on the bike. And when I uh, could take the training wheels off, let me go. And uh, it was just a great experience to have somebody there. Hey, you're wondering what the heck you're supposed to do as you join an organization. And then somebody calls you up and tells you, hey, this, 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 and this, and this. And if you need any help, call me. And it, boy, it's just so huge to have that and we'll call somebody and get their information and uh, then refer back to it. The other thing is I, I started talking to people about Chris and I found out that he did the same thing with our Heidi Murphy, our lieutenant here in New Hampshire, uh, has great stories about Chris too. And, and Chris basically did the same thing with her as a mentor. And I, I got to imagine, Chris, uh, you, you've done a few more than just the two of us uh, mentoring and maybe you don't see it as mentoring, but I, I think everybody that you, you did those things for really appreciates that. And that's what assistance chiefs do. That's what leaders do to me. That certainly, I know you're a leader in Idaho. Yeah, I appreciate you, you know, taking that leadership role with me and, and showing me the way and uh, blazing the trail for me as a former president. So, because that was an awesome opportunity to work with a lot of awesome people to, to protect our wildlife. It was certainly a pleasure. And something like you said that I don't look at it as mentorship, just being a partner and doing it for the right reasons. Right. I think that's how you've done your career, too, is uh, how'd you get started in wildlife? And you started in John's new home state there, Montana. That, that, that was a good start for both of you. Well, a good restart for you, John. <laughs> yeah. And Chris, Chris what, a, what a small world with you uh, right over our Montana-Idaho border now. So take us back in the Wayback Machine and uh, tell us that start, how, how that journey started for you. <laughs> Well, so to go to the Wayback Machine, it starts even before I became a game warden. I grew up in a game warden family. My dad was a career Idaho Fish and Game employee. I was in enforcement for probably 15, 20 years, and then he was a regional supervisor probably the last 10 years of his career. So I grew up hearing all the game warden stories. I would sit up and listen to them when they would sit in a circle having beers at my dad's house. And I would just sit in the background and just listen to the stories. 
and developed the desire at a very young age to protect our wildlife and be part of that, that brotherhood. And so out of high school, I went to college. At the time, Idaho would hire people with a college degree. So I just, I went to school to be a teacher, uh, um, science teacher. Uh, it's uh, called the Broadfield in Science. So I could teach any of the sciences in high school. During that time, during the interim, Idaho changed their requirements that you need to have a Fisher Wildlife degree only. So that kind of put me out of the running to come to Idaho. And so I actually became a teacher. I taught high school chemistry, physics, and biology for three years. Then an opportunity came for Montana to be a game warden, and they were not as strict in their education requirements. Any science degree would work. And so I put in and was actually given the opportunity to go to work for Montana. And I started with them in 1995. The interesting story about that is so when their assistant chief called me, at the time I was 26, so I didn't feel like I was that terribly young, but his lead into hiring me was, you are the youngest out of the whole group that I think I'm willing to offer a job to. Wow. I mean, but how do you you take that? At first, it's like, okay, I don't know what that means. Do I have a job? And in the end, obviously, I did. And I went to work for Montana and... I mean, great state, great place, but my heart was always in Idaho because I grew up in Idaho and sure. uh, game wardened in Plentywood and then in Chinook and then was promoted to investigations in 2001, moved to Helena, and then that's when the opportunity to come to Idaho sprung up. And it was actually a unique opportunity from the perspective that they were actually hiring a supervisor. They had done a couple of rounds of hire, trying to hire for that position internally. They decided to go external. Um, as far as I know, it's the only time Idaho has ever gone external to hire an enforcement supervisor. Mm. And uh, again, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to come to Idaho as a supervisor. And the uniqueness of that opportunity is three of the people that I ended up supervising, my dad had supervised when I was a kid and I grew up listening to their game warden stories. Wow. Yeah. I moved to Idaho and now I'm supervising two guys that I looked up to as a kid. So yeah, pretty unique. I don't know how much you want me to go on rambling Wayne, but yeah, no, you can keep talking. That's a, that's a very unique start. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. And did they think that was a cool thing? Or sometimes you, you got that kid that grew up there, started to be your supervisor. <laughs> I, I could see some problems. <laughs> that newfangled yeah. thinking you brought with you. <laughs> and, and there was, I mean, one of the guys, his first greeting to me was, oh, there's a snot-nosed kid I help raise. <laughs> like, okay. But he ended up, I mean, handling just fine. and. Yeah. I mean, he, he became one of my closest friends, and we still are close friends. And uh, the other officer, I mean, we struggled at times a little bit, but I just think that wasn't because of who I am. It's just he's just a very strong-willed person and used to doing it his way, had been doing it his way for a long, long time. And we worked through it, though. I mean, it turned out good. But like you said, though, I mean, I went into it with open eyes thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, here I, here I go. I mean, I grew up 
watching these guys. And This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yeah. No, and I, I, I can see that because even as a normal supervisor to bring in new information and make people do it in a different way sometimes doesn't go over very good. And sometimes you have to be a hard nose about it saying, hey, this is the way the policy now says we have to do it. You have to do it that way regardless of how you feel. And that sometimes reflects on you even though it's not you. It, it's, it's the way things are <laughs> shifting. And sometimes, let's face it, we like to do things a little bit different. And I always prided myself on letting the younger generation try to bring in what they brought in. Uh, they'd ask me information on different cases and stuff. I'm like, I, I need a, set, a set of fresh eyes on that. You, you look at it and see what you can figure out. And some of those guys cracked cases that I, I, didn't, I didn't catch that poacher. And they caught the poacher because they looked at it at a different angle. And after it happened once, I'm like, yeah, I'm not telling you how to do it. I want you to tell me how you go about it and go at it. And if you're going to get hurt, I'll say something. But otherwise, you know, let's take it from a different angle because I don't know everything. And, and I haven't been able to make that case yet. And I know it's there to be made. So I think that it's a, it's a unique situation if you can carry that on. But, boy, I, I, I can tell you, I... At 18 years old, I was running an electrical crew, and I had guys working for me that were in their 40s, and I almost got punched several times, nose to nose with them over <laughs> telling them yeah. to do things. And, you know, I know contractors are a lot different than game wardens, but it, it was tense, and I was just one of those 18-year-olds that didn't back down either. So, you know, I was going to yeah. take the punch. <laughs> and that was hey, part hey, of the process. <laughs> Yeah, that it, that whole leadership trend transition, right? Uh, you know, Chris Wayne, as, as we're on this subject, it's kind of interesting because in 1992, when I was one of the, uh, I was one of four civilians that made the cut on the hiring list to join the Fish and Wildlife Academy in, in Napa College in 92. And the rest of the academy were all these lateral state park rangers and state police that were transitioning over to game warden careers. So they were in their mid 30s, some were 40. I was 21 and a half years old. And selected to be a squad leader. We had four squads in the in the cadet class, and I I got selected to be a squad leader. So I have to supervise, you know, and get ready for inspection and drill these guys. And I'm freaked out because I'm just a <laughs> wide eyed kid with hardly any work experience out of college and probation, supervising guys twice my age with exponentially more law enforcement experience. Um, and it was, uh, it, it hit close to home. It, it did all work out. We all bonded well. And I, I sure had a, a fast learning curve, you know, to meet the, meet the expectations, but it, it's very weird to do it so young with guys that are so much older, Wayne, like you just pointed out. And then to have, have guys that, uh, 
you know, you kind of looked up to Chris, you know, growing up and, and now you're on it. So it's a small world for all of us. It's interesting. No doubt. Very, very true. Chris, what's your first case that stands out in your mind that, that you were able to pull out, whether it's Montana or Idaho, uh, that first fishing game case? That, that's, that's a good question. I mean, it, they go back so far just simply because I've been in management for so long now. Right. That, you know, it takes me back to when I first started, I guess. You know, you always remember. That's my happy place. I though. mean, like, <laughs> oh, I agree. I agree. You know, and, and Wayne, as I read through your thing, uh, your your list of questions and trying to think of that one case that kind of really stands out, um, it's probably satisfying is not a fair word, but I'm, I'm glad we caught the person that was doing this. And I'll explain it, but it was also one of the most maddening cases of my career. Mm, yeah. So it was, I'm going to say what winter it was the first winter I was in my patrol area. So it would have been, I think, 96, like March of 96. I get a report of one of our other officers, and it was actually my sergeant. He was doing some, was helping wildlife and doing some wildlife surveys. And they flew over this ranch and found an inordinate number of dead deer. They didn't know exactly how many, but it just seemed odd where these deer were laying. And so I jumped in a plane and flew over this and saw, like I say, I mean, more than 20, what looked like more than 20 dead deer in and around this rancher's house. Hmm. And we were able to obtain a search warrant. And the day we actually served the search warrant, so, and again, maddening because we made a few mistakes or I made a few mistakes. I was only on a year at the time, but my warden captain, kind of like you were talking about just letting the young bucks go, let the young officers go do their thing. He's just like, okay, I think you're ready to do this. You go run it. So the first mistake is I didn't get a warrant for the house so we could look for guns. I just got a warrant for the property. And by the time we were done, we collected 86, I think it was 86 total dead deer. Wow. And I mean, I have pictures of them just mounted in the back of trucks and in trailers. And we took those. And of course, it's probably one of the coolest winters I've experienced. So the day we're serving the search warrant, it was well below zero. So obviously all the deer mm-hmm. are frozen. We took the deer to a Quonset hut shed and got portable heaters, got them all thawed out, did our necropsies, and 82 of the 86 deer died from bullets, whether it was a shotgun or a 22. Mm-hmm. And, and it was at that time when we thought, okay, let's go get a warrant for the house. And <clears throat> we were able to obtain it. Guy had empty boxes of ammo, a nice gun cabinet, yeah, everything, but no guns. And he told us he's never owned a gun. It's like, really? I mean, you have a gun cabinet right here and empty. (laughs) And then there were empty, there were shell casings all over his porch and doing some more background. So he, he's a landowner outfitter. Mm -hmm. And at the time, and I don't know if Coda rule has changed in Montana since then, but Back then, a, a landowner could outfit on his own property without an uh, outfitter's license. Mm-hmm. So that was his primary way of making a living. He had tree stands all over his property, but then he laid down these these 82 whitetail. Wow. <clears throat> and they were, I mean, no discrimination. I mean, they were bucks, does, fawns. And his 
complaint was that they were getting into his hay. Then we were also able to show that he knew how to, to handle the process because he's called and complained about game depredations in the past. So at the end of the day, some political issues interfered. The prosecuting attorney was running for office again, and this was one of the main landowners in the county and one of his main supporters. Mm -hmm. And we ended up getting a plea offer of one count of closed season and one count of waste of game, considering that there were 82 dead deer. When we went back and served the search warrant for the guns, we found an additional 20 deer around the property because the snow had melted some. So by the time the dust settled, we figured there was a, over 100 deer, 101 deer that he had killed. Oh my God. So at the end of the day, when the prosecutor came forward with that offer, it was like, take that offer. It was more of a slap in the face than nothing at all. Wow. So we chose nothing. So that's why I say one of the bigger cases, but most frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> you're just talking about it frustrates me, Chris. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, that, that, that's horrible. And it's shocking, too, because if the guy's an outfitter, I mean, he's kind of cutting his own throat, one would think, to, you know, usually they Absolutely. want to keep all the deer for the sports so you can actually go there and kill something yeah. and he can make some money on it. I mean, he sounds a little twisted, to be honest with you. That's exactly what we thought. <laughs> kind of surprising. I mean. Man. Huh. But, Chris, it was, uh, it was one of those things where even, even though there wasn't a, a conviction necessarily, you guys brought a lot of attention to it. Was that the first time he ever had, you know, um, wildlife enforcement really come down on his place, do a solid check? I mean, had he been exposed to a search warrant before? Because just from a deterrence standpoint, it sounds like you probably shut that thing down for many years to come, if not indefinitely, I hope. I think you're exactly right. And what I was hearing from the neighboring landowners, they they – they thought something was going on because they would hear the shooting. Yeah. There weren't seeing as many deer. And then when it started getting some exposure and then they were reaching out to me, thanking me and it spread through that hole. And it's nice. along the Yellowstone river, um, mm -hmm. just inside that Montana border. So that whole corridor, people were hearing about it and they, they were not real happy with the landowner and he I'll felt bet. Yeah, that's that's great, especially given that number of whitetail. I mean, being in Montana now and knowing what you know what we're dealing with with chronic wasting disease and everything else that we certainly want to talk with you a little bit about on the Idaho side. But we're we're guarding those those whitetail and what mule deer are left pretty uh pretty uh adamantly you know right now and um, especially with out of state hunters being up in Idaho and montana and wyoming we're we're kind of a destination like your state is for mm -hmm. all those out-of-state hunters that really value that that hunt they get if they if they're lucky enough to draw so that that's a huge hit 100 plus deer by anybody's standards in any state is is, is a huge hit so good case that you guys expose that yeah no thanks for bringing out the positive parts uh, just for the record chris as a lieutenant i did work through the search warrants too i wouldn't let the guys run on that alone <laughs> 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 oh man i, I kind of want to go back to your your sports side too and you know one thing i say and it, it's it's not a negative but uh, we're competing for kids time right now and to get them outside it's the same time as football season to get out and hunt and stuff and i know you were a big football player and uh, paying for it now too aren't you i mean <laughs> and i don't know if that's a result <laughs> but uh, if, if you could talk about you know sports and then being outside and certainly you were exposed to both and uh and that and and what your aspect is now and maybe uh, maybe a solution too to how to how to share the time of children growing up i know hockey season is starting 
Tuesday night for my son. You know, the next day is the opening day of waterfowl on our on our biggest river, and he wants to do both. And I'm like, my wife's like, you can't do both. <laughs> Dad was like, yeah, we can squeeze it in. <laughs> well, it's, and, and I will say, Wayne, you, you are right. I am, what I'm going through now is a direct result of football and lifting and trying to get strong to continue to play football. And just so you know, I mean, I had two shoulder surgeries and a back surgery in the last six years. Wow. And it's just from the wear and tear, just let my body take too much, I guess. But it's all good. Things are on the men now. Wayne, I guess that's hard. You know, I mean, sports are different now than when I was a kid, because now it demands so much more of your time. When my son went through high school, it was almost a year round thing. And if you don't attend all yeah. the spring stuff and the summer stuff, then you're not considered for the fall stuff. And <clears throat> my son and I did as much as we could. My daughters were not as into hunting and fishing as my son, but my oldest daughter, we, we just made it work. We just found the hunts that would fit around her schedule. She was a basketball player, ear leader, that kind of stuff. <clears throat> we just try to find those mornings that we could just get out and create some memories. And, there's a lot of fun ones that we created. I mean, mm. probably our my best day with her is we got up in the morning, went out, found a little mule deer doe for her and got it all taken care of, drove back into town in time to stop at my office. It was raining all day. So we had to change clothes into um, some more waterproof clothes because then we went to the Boise State football game. <laughs> and just, we fit it all in in one day. Wow. So I, I, I don't know that I have advice as much as just if it's important you'll figure it out. And are your kids still doing you'll that today? Are they hunting and fishing today? Or <clears throat> My son is definitely. And so that does bring an interesting story. We, my kids and we, we get together, you know, they're all adults. They all have their own kids and we get together probably once a week as a group. Nice. Nice. We just have dinner and just be together. And of course I, I have to see my grandkids. That's, <laughs> that's cool the best. I mean, it's yeah. the best, but <clears throat> my oldest daughter just out of the blue sprung it on my son saying, Hey, will you take me deer hunting next week? Nice. She went out and bought all new hunting clothes, got her license, her deer tag. Her and her brother went up, slept in the truck overnight, got up the next day, hunted all day. He ended up getting a deer. She helped him get all taken care of and quartered and they brought it home and had a great experience. And now that's all she can talk about is the next time she gets oh, to go. Oh man. Neat. That's awesome. Never too late to jump back in on huh, Chris. That's, oh. that's an exciting story, man. Yeah, <laughs> that's it's, inspiring. It's, it's really cool. So one of my dreams one day is to have a Thanksgiving elk camp with the whole family. We're all going elk hunting. Yeah. And we took Thanksgiving dinner in the wall tent. And that now awesome. with, yeah. yeah, with these changes, it seems like, okay, this still might happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we, uh, we talk about it on almost every podcast right now, especially, and it's nice you bringing a perspective from Idaho that we really haven't heard the effects of COVID on your agency, on wildlife regulations, your public, your non-resident, your resident hunters. Now that we've, you know, been in it for almost a year or getting close to that year, how are you guys holding up in Idaho on the COVID front? And, and what are you seeing from the standpoint of enforcement changes and, and, and policies? And how's your hunts and, and angling seasons going with it all? There's a lot in that question. 
There is. <laughs> Open it up for some some big stories, man. Yeah, great state of Idaho. Of course, you know, and I'm sure you guys have experienced the same thing. But one thing, you know, being able to travel throughout the country, especially with the International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, game wardens or game wardens or game wardens. We're independent. We want to do it ourselves. We don't want help, although we take help when we need it. So that has probably been one of our biggest hurdles is I want to go check licenses. I want to go fight crime. I want to go protect our wildlife. And we've been telling them, no, slow down, be visible. Let's not do a lot of contact. So it's, I don't know that we're 100% there, but I think by and large, our officers are, are shifting gears. They're finding new ways to, to, to fight crime. They're able to focus on those groups that they know have been there for years, but didn't feel like they had the time to do it because they felt like they needed to be checking licenses. And so now they're able to kind of step back a little bit and spend more time doing surveillance and, and really focusing on those people that are really doing the resource damage. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. There's a lot to be said about that, Chris, of, um, you know, you think you got to check all these licenses, but yeah, and I, and I love it when people say, you know, I've never been checked by a game warden before. I said, well, that's great because you've been probably watched by a game warden before if you're out here hunting or fishing because we're not necessarily that we check everybody. And that's, and again, the name of the podcast is Warden's Watch. You know, we don't always contact you because I think that's what people always think we do. All we do is check hunting and fishing licenses and we drive around and drink coffee. Uh, <laughs> so, don't and, forget and the donuts. Yeah, uh, I was never a big donut guy, <laughs> unless they were homemade. <laughs> but and I think you're right. We refocus on the important things and putting a little more time and effort into it because now, and I think we think the administration wants us to go hunting and make sure everybody's compliant and checking hunting and fishing licenses. And now you're telling them, hey, why don't you go watch a little more and 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 make on those cases? That's that's a great thing. To say for a guy is like, and then he says, "Oh, geez, how about this group and that group?" and he and he focuses a little more time. Um, I just remember that great case that you guys had in Idaho when we were up there for the conference that you had your your guys talk about that elk hunting case and you know all the time and effort that was put into that because uh, these guys that are in remote areas and you're dealing with them, it, it's a lot of extra work, isn't it? Dealing with these remote hunts, which you guys do have in Idaho. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's very true, and it. Uh... I say it, it has been hard to kind of get our folks to refocus just because it's so ingrained to mm, go do that yeah. and, and yeah. be present. And, and so now I think they're starting to just turn their eyes more towards the intentional violator and not worried about somebody that catches one hatchery fish over the limit. Although, I mean, we do address that, but it's still, it's not an emphasis right now. We're, we're looking for those intentional violators and, just spending more time doing those things. Yeah, we look at, you know, Chris, we talk about trying to find a positive out of something so dark and negative like this pandemic. And that's the same thing my colleagues in California and the guys here in Montana are dealing with is, especially with uh, with the internet now and wildlife trafficking teams and getting to do so much stuff that's on social media, poaching cases, illegal sales, and just getting in a safe space and working the internet effectively and making cases that way. Um, and then building up those warrants from there and, and getting the surveillance they need and, you know, maybe going weeks, if not months without a contact for COVID safety, but, but the dent they're making when they make that case is it's huge. 
you know, Lacey Act stuff and everything else. And we're seeing a lot of that in the Western states um, as a result of COVID. So, but it is, it sure is hard to just stay inside <laughs> and not get out there and run and gun. I mean, I, I couldn't handle it for the, all the years finding that patience, you know, before we got into more investigations, like, like I'm sure your officers are struggling with, but, uh, but, but there are the positives there. And that's a good thing you point out. Um, how are you guys on, uh, on CWD in, in Idaho? Just out of curiosity with your, with your big game species and has it had an impact, if any? Well, <clears throat> currently, knock on wood, I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to say we have not had one documented case in Idaho. Awesome. But we are certainly eyes up and paying attention to what's going on around us. And we have some new rules in place that, like many states, prohibit the import of any carcass or brain material from any CWD states. Mm-hmm. And this is the second fall that that's been in place, certainly growing pains, you know, trying to get our taxidermists and our meat cutters in the loop and aware of what they are responsible for doing. And so I think things are going well. We have a pretty strong CWD working group. We've actually done some tabletop exercises in preparation for because we're not sitting here saying it'll never happen right we're preparing for when it does happen yeah because I, I think it will you know especially with montana i mean right where you're at in libby it's I hot mean, it's right <laughs> across the hill from us and yeah so i mean it's gonna happen yeah. yeah it was it was interesting you mentioned that and that's one of the reasons i i i thought that question would be good to talk about because i wasn't sure where you guys were at and we're so close right to the bonners ferry border you know, mm-hmm. where I'm at, like you said, here in Libby and Lincoln County, and I harvested my first mule deer, I'm normally getting whitetail, you know, during our fall seasons. And fortunately, this mealy was in the high country and well out of the CWD zone, but still had the test done just to be safe, you know, had had never experienced from being on the other side, you know, as a hunter versus an enforcement. And right. just, uh, you know, just the, the bottleneck, like it, like, like going through a toll bridge of what it took. Cause we had so many deer taken within the CWD zone of Libby, that 10 mile diameter. And I mean, it, you'd spend half a day at a check station with a lot of other guys and, and gals and kids, you know, to get your deer checked. And, uh, you know, then the whole hang up of, okay, now it's going to be two weeks before I get my results back. And if this is a positive test, I'm going to get to go hunt again, but the season's almost over. We're in our rut. So all the different, <laughs> you know what I mean? All, all, all the challenges that we see on the enforcement side in these, in these Northwest States. And it's just, it, it is a problem here for us big time, especially in town. And it just hit our game wardens locally, bud, like at it, it hit them hard because we're, we're way spread out here. As you, as you know, for this part of the state on, on bodies crossing my fingers, you know, prayers up that it doesn't cross that border anytime soon, but uh, nice to know you guys are preparing for it because it's, it's hitting our big States pretty hard now. Yeah. There are certainly wildlife diseases are concerned for all of us. Uh, My brother just sent me an article out of New York, Southern New York, having a problem with a, sounds like a mite that's killing the the deer and there's like 400 deer dead that they found along the river because uh, uh, they start to, to desire to be thirsty so they start drinking and uh yeah another i'm like here's something new that i haven't heard of you know and now they're yeah. worried about that spreading around new york i will say cold weather seems to kill a lot of those bugs and everything the more further north you get it seems to be like we have yeah. less ticks we have our share, but we have less than if you go, you know, where the warm weather is. So, mm-hmm. Is that your experience too, Chris? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, we still have a fair number of ticks, there's no doubt, but I don't know that it's the same as the Midwest down south. Right. But that's just speculation on my part anyway. 
Yeah. Do, do you have a case that comes to mind recently that's, you know, the refocusing has actually uh, produced? I know as supervisors, we end up work, living <laughs> through our, our, our enforcement officers. I mean, when I was a <laughs> lieutenant, and it was a great thing because the guy that had the action is where I went. So if somebody had a case right. going on, I was there. It was the most awesome thing because I didn't have to generate my own activity. Those guys were always generating activity around me, and I could join in, which was, mm-hmm. which was so much fun. I, I, I liked that part of it. I don't know if you had something that you know the refocus maybe is, has produced for you or something you can talk about or Operation Game Thief. It is Operation Game Thief in Idaho, isn't it? No, it's Citizens Against Poaching. Citizens Against Poaching. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, you I guys. Same thing, but. Yeah, but at least people that are listening that go to Idaho know how to report. And if they go to International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, click on Idaho, there's the contact information on how to report wildlife crime, which is the most awesome thing in the world. No matter where you go, click on the United States and Canada, and you can report a crime. And I think that's that's the handiest thing that that we did yeah. for the the everyday sportsman is how to report because we do we have Operation Game Thieves we have Turn in a Poacher we have Citizens Against Poaching and your yours has been one of the most successful programs that I have seen and when I created the New Hampshire Operation Game Three from the ashes of what was handed to me I looked at all the successes you know uh, Maine Texas Idaho. And what you guys brought forth was the citizens' involvement, and that's where I saw the success. That's where people got involved, the sportsmen and women got involved in protecting on wildlife. That's where I saw you guys were making the biggest difference, and that's kind of why I copied uh, you guys, and that's been a pretty big success for you, hasn't it? It has, It's and it continues to grow, <clears throat> and under the current leadership of the Citizen Against Poaching Board, they have taken the leap for advertising and promotion. Nice. And we're seeing a, a rise in calls. Nice. Um, nice. Paying more rewards. So, I mean, it, it's it's going really well. And I think um, they actually just kicked off on September 1, a six-week Facebook, internet, television, radio blast, and the call volume just shooting from my hip, I would say it's probably almost tripled what it normally does in September. Mm. Wow. So, yeah, it, it, it is a success. And when I'll, I'll peel back to your question about cases during COVID. There isn't really one case that like jumps out, but one of the refocuses has been on what we call wrong class. Uh, I'm not sure what, you know, New Hampshire or other States call it, but here in Idaho, that means a non-resident comes in and buys a resident license when they're not supposed to. Yes. And we have seen a huge jump in the number of violation detections. And again, it's because we're not out making contacts. We're able to sit behind the computer, build the cases, mm-hmm. and it's going through the roof. Right. Yeah, when we talked to the Montana chief, he actually had a position that he was doing that. That was all they were doing was that type of thing because it was so prevalent. And I'm assuming because a a resident gets so much more benefits to be a resident in Idaho and Montana. I'm assuming you get cheaper prices, you get more opportunity, oh, yeah. um, and that's, by far that that's the benefits of being a, a resident of that state. Even though you're not, you might have your priorities somewhere else. You might live in, and most of them, I would imagine most of them live in California, like John used to, and then they come and recreate there. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> I like yeah. to pick on and then, John. And then, <laughs> and, then, and then Chris, just just like I'm sure with uh, I, I've seen your tag prices for non-residents and what I used to pay as a non-resident to come hunt here and be with the family, and then becoming a resident of Montana was yeah. I mean Wayne, to your point, um, the cost is so so low for for us residents on combination packages for multiple species and. It, you know, it really encourages us to be to be out there as conservationists. It's kind of nice, but one, once that resident commitment is there, it works out well. So, Wayne, you mentioned Californians, and actually, <clears throat> the two states that present the most licensed fraud cases is Utah and Washington. Wow, I'm surprised. I'll be darn. Yeah, I mean, we do get some from California, but <clears throat> you think of the proximity of right. Salt Lake City huh. and they go north into an area called Island Park. And then you think of Spokane, which is right on the Idaho border. Right. So they pop over and buy their resident licenses and go mm. hunt. And it's a pretty big deal. Right. Do, does Washington see the same thing from Idaho people doing the same? I would say no, just because of the way their rules are written. They don't allow hound hunting. Okay. And we right. do. So we get a lot of bear hunters, lion hunters. Mm-hmm. We still get a significant number of deer hunters as well, but it seems like the hound hunting aspect is not necessarily a priority, but more prevalent. Right, because they have to have yeah. somewhere to go. And, yeah. and Chris, when you when you mentioned hound hunting, you mentioned bear hunting. We up here in Montana, we actually saw this in California when I was uh, finishing my career up in California, especially in the northeastern section of California, where we have fantastic black bear populations and big black bears because they don't go through, through a hibernation phase. Um, we would get that Utah compliment of really hardcore bear houndsmen. Um, coming into California and, and doing some residency stuff as well. And then up here in mm. Montana as well, because we have a, a good black bear hunt and we probably have as many, if not more out of state black bear diehards, so to speak, than we, even with our residential, you know, contingent of black bear hunters. And there have been some fraud cases there as well. It's interesting. You mentioned Utah and that, it, that it's affecting Idaho as well. I'm jealous of you guys. Cause you guys have elk. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. And, you know, I went out to Colorado and <laughs> shot an elk, and I every year that's what I want to do. I just, uh, I just, it's it's a long drive, and uh, it's it's a little pricey. <laughs> and it sounds well, like Chris, you do... it's it's, it's... Go ahead, yeah, John. and and not only not only the elk herd, uh, not only the elk opportunity in these states, but Chris, what I didn't realize until very recently is that you have a moose population there in parts of Idaho, and. I have uh, a SEAL Team 1 veteran friend that's a fairly new hunter, and he drew a tag out of the Moscow area, and he's currently uh, on that hunt. Um, and it's, a, it's okay. a veteran hunt through an outfitter, and he's, he's never gotten an elk yet or, or anything. I, he shot a black bear. That's about it. And, and he might have shot a whitetail back east. He's from Missouri. But I've been kind of working, coaching him on long range work and getting his gun ready. You know, he's in Missouri. I'm out here in Montana. And um, if things work out, I might go join him for a couple of days on this hunt toward the end of the week. We're trying to juggle that. But 
you want to talk about one excited one excited veteran brother is is he's telling all of the all of our inner circle i'm going moose hunting i'm like no you're not where are you going moose hunting in the lower 48 so he's bragging i'm actually going for moose in the lower 48 i'm going to idaho and it's my first opportunity he's taking it very seriously and it's uh it's super cool so uh yeah they're they're going to be on that in a couple of days and it was an eye opener to me too. I, I didn't realize you guys had that herd down in that area, and it's pretty exciting. Yeah, we actually had quite a few moose. Super cool. And we used to give 500 permits out, and now we're down to 50 permits. It's a pretty oh, sad oh. situation. I guess it's stabilizing. But as a game warden, I had the most fun during moose season because I've never had calls pending as a game warden until moose season, and I, we had like three calls waiting for us, and just it, it was so much fun. Uh, just <laughs> yeah, it, it was lots of cases, uh, lot, yeah, lots of good investigation cases, and yeah, it was moose is probably my favorite animal, even though we don't have as many anymore. But usually during this time of year, I usually have a bull through the yard, and I haven't yet, so there's still a little bit time, a little bit of running still going on. So maybe we'll we'll see one yet. So, and Chris, you, you're an elk hunter. I said if you want Thanksgiving giving at elk camp, uh, that that's a, that's a big deal. Yeah. every year. Yeah, well, we haven't done it yet, but eventually I do want to do that. And with everybody starting to show interest in hunting, get my grandkids a little bit older and yeah. get a nice big camp set up and, and go do it. That just sounds but Yes, awesome. we hunt elk, deer, bears, all the above. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Antelope. See, you're getting me more and more jealous the more we talk about it. <laughs> well, don't forget about our sheep and goats. Uh, oh, thanks. That's right. I'm going to finish that off. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they got, they got the high country species too, Wayne. Yeah. One of those yeah. good states. <laughs> Did you guys uh, work with any introductions or bringing those herds back? I mean, are your wardens work pretty closely with your biologists in Idaho? They do. <clears throat> a lot of our um, a lot of our officers will actually do aerial surveys. They'll help do some um, collaring and tagging. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do a lot of uh, drive net type stuff, and then they go in and get their hands on them. Several years ago, we did actually relocate some bighorn sheep from my old patrol area out of Chinook and the Missouri River Breaks to our Hell's Canyon herd down here in Idaho. So that was kind of fun. I moved to Idaho and then hear that some you know, big batch, of, I think there were 15 sheep or something like that out of my old patrol area are now in Idaho. So that was kind of fun. Super mm. cool. Was that yeah. the voice yeah. of the population or there was no population there? Um, Genetic diversity. Yes, is what I understand. That's so what there was already a population there, but they just needed some a push. Mm-hmm. Yep, and, that, and that's sometimes that we we have to do that because the genes get so the same breeding, bringing some of that <laughs> diversity. It, it's it's really good because populations get isolated. It's, they it's, do. It's it's pretty interesting to see, and uh, certainly some of our listeners probably have experienced that or don't understand it. Uh, one of the wardens in Vermont was actually, you know, he kind of did his own little research on deer and dna and you know found out that you know different populations even on one side of the mountain to the other uh different dna signatures and stuff which was uh interesting and the the shorter of the nose and looking at the the heads comparative and you know sometimes game wardens really get into the biology uh, of the wildlife and i i've learned so much from wardens just in in conversation because they are so much into certain like species and and, and just become uh, pretty, uh, whether you have a degree or not, you become a, a woods biologist, so to speak, I guess. And 
I always love to use the word biologize. I think we all biologize. I don't think it's a word that's why I like to use it, Chris. <laughs> yeah, we're, you know, kind of one of those agree. perks. Of, yeah, I definitely agree with that, Wayne. And one of one of those perks of the job we fall into, you know, and we, we gain that that additional knowledge. But you know, Chris, when we talk about we talk about obviously the COVID effects, and it's kind of pretty uniform, it seems, throughout all the states on how we're changing our enforcement strategy, but I noticed, you know, in my in the old golden state of California, where I originated from, and Wayne and I have talked about this a little bit, even in New Hampshire and in Idaho, as our bigger urban centers in our quote unquote mountain states where, where the three of us are, what are you seeing from the standpoint of enforcement trends changing or, um, you know, as we get that population mass kind of expanding? Um, I know in California, we were dealing with so much more mountain lion depredation, public safety interaction things like that, black bear problems in town, uh, you know, and then a, a twist to more legislation to kind of protect wildlife from a preservation standpoint versus conservation model. Um, are you seeing any of that in Idaho? And do you, what do you anticipate because you're in the chief's position, kind of looking over things from that 30,000 foot view? What are the, what are, what's happening in your state? Do you think down the road here? Again, just like you did to me before, there's a lot to that question. <laughs> so try to peel the onion a little bit. I think, I don't know that we're seeing an increased amount of human interaction or human conflict with mountain lions or black bears. That seems to be on par with what we normally see. But what I do see in the future and what I, well, and, I, and I'll back that up. What we've already started seeing, especially on our Citizens Against Poaching calls, we know that our population is growing. We're having a lot of folks from back east, New York, moving here. A lot of folks from California and Washington mm -hmm. are moving here. And I, I'm seeing more of these phone calls to me, they're obviously people that are not outdoorsmen or hunters. Right. Complaining about wildlife in places that they shouldn't complain about wildlife. Yeah. So th that is one thing I have noticed. And I think that will continue, <clears throat> especially when these people that are not familiar with the outdoors and familiar with hunting, once they start engaging in those activities, I think we're going to have a lot of... Uh, what we refer to as an accidental tourist. They don't go out intending to violate. They just don't know the rules well enough and they go violate. Right. Yeah. So that is certainly one thing I can see. Um, talking to other law enforcement folks, they are concerned about the influx of people from out of state and what criminal element might be coming into the state that we are not used to seeing. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe an increase in gang issues certainly increase in drug issues. And as you guys know, our bad guys are their bad guys. So they're going to be mm -hmm. out violating and doing drugs and creating other problems. Yep. No doubt. I've, I've actually heard about graffiti being sprayed on some of our trails in the white mountains. And uh, that's just heartbreaking oh, wow. that someone yeah. can bring their culture and then put it into something that's naturally beautiful. And then, you know, put a can of spray paint on it and just, uh, it's heartbreaking that that's what's coming. It's interesting. It. Yeah. And it's interesting that you would say that Wayne, because my wife and I are having a discussion about this last week and she made almost that exact same comment as <clears throat> we don't need them bringing their culture into our culture. It's just not going to work. And, There'll and be I, conflict. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the, the, our culture will win because 
I don't think they can survive in the culture that we survive in at this point. When, when you when you come out of those and you expect all these, uh, you expect when you call nine one one for a police officer to be there in five minutes. You expect the fire department to be there in ten. Uh, your garbage is always picked up. I mean, we have come to live in a lot of things. That when when the pandemic hit. The only problem I had, my freezer broke about midway through, which I wasn't a happy oh, camper. No. Yeah, and you can't get a freezer. That was, uh, <laughs> no, that was hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, but that was one of two, thank goodness. So I crammed the other one. My in-laws got stuff, and we made it through. But it's, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we're we're set up because we we live here, and to the fact that now I'm starting look at a hand pump for an artesian well, so. Um, you know, if we go down in the power and I have to, you know, start pumping my, I got a generator that kicks on automatically, but that's good for about two weeks of running solid. But if I need a hand pump, you know, I gotta, I gotta think of, you know, the longer term stuff for getting water. I have a, I have a river that's, you know, 300, I'm getting kind of, you know, getting a little, uh, I guess city ways to have a hand pump in the yard rather than drive down to the river and get it. So, which which is <laughs> very close. Feel, <laughs> yeah, but, but feel expedient and it cannot fail. You know, yeah. that, that's that's a great solution, Wayne. Yeah, but yeah. you know, you know, Chris, you, I think you hit it on the head, Chris, when you talked about the accidental violations from, uh, you know, people moving into predominantly from urban areas coming to try to get a little distance, and something we noticed up here in Montana. Wayne and I talked about this Idaho as well as just absence absentee land sales from out of state from urban states just looking for a place to go in the event that this pandemic gets worse or we have another you know another catastrophe down the road and those accidental violations are what we're fearing in other states as well as people on the survival trend and you know maybe not mm-hmm. being prepared for that mindset of what we're all used to living in wild country and knowing ethical legal hunting conservation and um, and that we've had a just an inordinate amount, an exponential amount of of tracks being bought up all over here in northwestern Montana, central Montana. I'm sure Idaho's the same way. It is of uh, of get people getting prepped, you know, and um, with with very with very little familiarization of the region and and what it entails to to really live and survive if you have to in that in that situation. So um, interesting to hear you say that as well from what we're seeing in, in these other states yeah and maybe they will acclimate I, I hope they do i hope they come to our side and, and, and embrace it and enjoy it just the, the same way we do and that's 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 my hope that, that they will acclimate to us and rather than trying to to switch back to what they they left oh is my hope because i i think they're leaving for a reason too and i think uh, most people are smart when they when they start gravitating to the outdoors and gravitating to their basics i think uh I think it's a it's a growing thing for them. So, and uh, certainly hope we can help yeah. with that too. Especially with, uh, and I was so against it with with the hunting, the apprenticeship hunting licenses when those first came out. I, I all I could read as a hunter education instructor. I'm like danger, danger, yeah. danger. We're actually going to let people <laughs> yeah. out there. It's just, but it's been yeah, this is gonna be... such a good program. Do you have that in your state, Chris? The apprentice hunting license. Well, we call it a passport. So you can only buy the passport if you have not purchased a hunting license in any other state. Mm-hmm. And so you can do it as an adult. You can only do it one year. Right. And it would be but if I us. think, if I remember right, if you're like nine, you can do it when you're nine and 10. So there's two years or eight and nine. I can't remember the exact years, but yes, it, it allows you to get a general deer tag or elk tag and go hunt just to get the experience and, mm. I believe we're seeing some good success. I think we're, we're nice. finding people that rather than 
the fear of doing hunter ed and not wanting to have that commitment before they try right. something, they try it, go, this is for me. And they do their hunter ed, their archery ed, and now they're part of our sports culture. Right. And that leads me on to another That's question. True. Has your hunter ed changed since COVID? Has it going totally <laughs> online or uh, I know totally online, totally online. No more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally online. No field day required. And actually that has been a good thing for my daughter-in-law because she did that and is going to go hunt for her first time this fall. Nice. And a little more convenient. Yeah. And she was reluctant to do it because she didn't want to have to go in person. She didn't want to have to do the field day. Mm -hmm. She got it all knocked out online. And I think her hunt starts here in, well, in a few days. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Good luck to her on that. And, and, you know, talking about the, uh, the hunter education program, Chris, we, we noticed this, we talked about it a lot on the fingering line podcast and Wayne and I got started on that right after COVID dropped is between April and May, there was a stat running approximately 30%, if not more increase in light hunting license sales nationally, which again, you know, look at what positives might be coming out of this catastrophe and us on the game warden side are like, yeah, all right, man, let's, let's get these numbers up. And uh, we saw it in Montana, uh, talking to my game warden partners here, license sales up, et cetera. How about in Idaho? Are you guys seeing that trend oh, as well? Yeah, yeah very much that. so. Yeah. Yeah. For all, for all of them hunting, fishing. I mean, it, at one point we had actually closed license sales down to non-residents. Wow. And then when we opened it back up, it just went, I mean, through the roof. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, everyone's getting in the outdoors for that space. Yeah. Good to see. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's just like the ATVs, camp trailers, boats. Yeah. I mean. Guns. They're making hay right now. <laughs> Ammunition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. Good. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, anything in closing, Chris, you want to go? We've, we've covered a lot of different type of ground. It's, it's, it's been really good to give us a little piece of Idaho. And uh, th- thanks for doing the podcast and, and sharing a little bit of Idaho with uh, the Warden's Watch podcast listeners. And I, I, I just, uh, game wardens are ambassadors as far as I'm concerned. We should be out there dealing with those people that, that love the outdoors. And just the podcast is kind of an ambassadorship to probably maybe help facilitate some of those people to get out there. And uh, again, we're not the big bad guys trying to whack everybody. We, we want people to do it the right way and, and to learn. And that's, uh, that's a lot of it too. It's, it's not always catching the bad guys, although we like to catch bad guys. It's also bringing those <laughs> unintentional violators into the fold. Yes. And it's all about protecting a very special heritage that we all share. And Wayne, I appreciate you asking me to come on board. It's been fun. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Chris, super, super cool to meet you and see you for the first time. Hope to meet you in Idaho or Montana someday down the road. We're not too far. Uh, And just thanks for being on, man. And all you're doing for the thin green line. It's uh, we, we haven't had a lot of folks from the West and the Northwest, especially, and this is a real treat and a pleasure. Thank you. Same for me too. And if you're ever in Boise, Let's go grab a beer or um, a sandwich or something. We'll make that happen, buddy. Definitely. Right on. Looking forward to it. <laughs> right. And Wayne, get your ear out here to go kill an elk. Uh, uh, okay. I take that as an invite. <laughs> yep, it is. It is. I think I know, I might know where there are some. You might. So I think that we, I'm going to put that on my list. So we'll be in touch. Right thank, thank you so much, Chris. Sounds great. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, 
and other game wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Through the blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. From the Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest, me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.